Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. On this show, we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. Today, Dr. Terry Daniel is joining us. She is a hospice and hospital-trained clinical chaplain. She is certified in death, dying, and bereavement by the Association of Death Education and Counseling and in trauma support by the International Association of Trauma Professionals. The focus of her work is to assist dying and grieving individuals to discover a more spiritually and socially spacious understanding of grief and beyond. So I'm excited to welcome Dr. Terry Daniel to the show today. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much. I'm really happy to be on the show with you. That was a tongue twister, spiritually and socially spacious. You did it perfectly. I did it. plus on that. So you're really at kind of at the forefront of a lot of the discussions around the afterlife. And I've had many near-death experiencers on the show who have shared their experience. But once we've heard their stories, what do we do with that information? I am so glad you asked me that question because that question isn't really being asked enough around the afterlife community and it's kind of become my new platform. So Having produced the Afterlife Conference now for 10 years, I've heard a million NDE stories, as have you, as we all. And um, it gets to the point where we just don't need to hear stories over and over again. I mean, the stories are wonderful, and they are now in the official historical record, if you will. But I am more about kind of spiritual activism. So I want to tell people, now that we know this, we don't need to just keep filling that pot with the same stuff over again. Let's take this material and go out into the world and do something with it. And of course, lots of people are. We have IANS doing wonderful work. You know, there's the researchers at the University of Virginia and Sam Parnia, wherever he is. Um, so that's happening. But for our, for our little village, our followers, um, I feel like we need to start giving them some examples or some direction about what they can do with it. And that's actually what I'm going to be talking about when I come to Chicago on um, March 14th to IONS. So, um, so what can we do with it? Well, I try to encourage people to get out into the world and actually get involved with death and dying. So the most obvious way is uh, to become a hospice volunteer. You know, you want to think about near-death experience and these beautiful visions, deathbed visions and dreams of the dying. Go and sit with dying people for a while and actually see what that feels like mm-hmm. to be with them when they're making that transition and get some experience and education so that you have more than just stories. Experience it firsthand. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also contact an organization called No One Dies Alone, NODA, N-O-D-A, and volunteer for them. Compassion and Choices is another option. Um, Many, many things you could do to actually get your foot in the actual door where people are actually dying. It's almost like when I think about the cuddlers for the baby, Uh the people that come in and are with babies when their parents have to go back to work and they're in the NICU, it sort of has that same kind of 
undertone, right? To, to sit with someone when they have no one else to be with them. Not only when they have no one else to be with them, but just in the, the context of, you know, getting some experience and some firsthand wisdom under your belt with dying. It's, yes, it's, it's helpful for the person, but in this context, I want people to go out there and do that so that they can become more well-rounded in this knowledge. So I'm the sitter is the one who benefits mm-hmm. as well. Um, because uh, I had this conversation with Raymond Moody several years ago, and we were both kind of lamenting that everybody's going around talking about this, but nobody listens because not enough people have valid credentials where they're, what they're saying is going to be taken seriously. And so that's part of the reason why I went back to school and got all these degrees so that when I go out into the world and talk about near-death experience after 12 years working in hospice, et cetera, people will listen to me. But if you're just a regular person who's maybe had an NDE or you've read the books and you go to the IONS meetings and the conferences, you come across to civilians you know, as a little flaky, a little woo-woo. So what I'm suggesting to people is go get some credentials, go get some real experience. That's where, how we can take this to the next step. Mm -hmm. And I think too, I've heard from people who have even sat with their own dying loved ones, really sat with them. It's a very emotionally moving experience to help someone transition out of this world it is not only emotionally moving it is spiritually awakening and transforming experience um you know and you can travel with them when you do that you know um you've probably heard of william peters you probably maybe even interviewed him who talks about the shared death experience yeah, Raymond, Dr. Moody, and I talked about the shared death experience. Yeah, and that's really a thing. You know, in, in the years that I worked at inpatient hospice, I would be able to sit with a patient, and just by synchronizing my breathing with theirs, I could travel with them. Hmm. And so I would like to see our village have more experiences like this. Mm-hmm. And the other level of that, and people ask me this all the time, so here we have a lot of people who are getting trained as death doulas, but you cannot get a job in a hospice or a hospital as a death doula. It doesn't exist. Um, very, very few clinical settings will bring in a death doula because of many things, because of HIPAA laws and liability, and death doulas aren't, do not have an official professional certification Mm. but there are people working on that deanna cochran is one of the people leading that movement and she's going to be at the afterlife conference um so until that happens um we have death doulas we have people trained in shamanic practices for death and dying we've got of course massage therapists and reiki people but the way our culture is right now is nobody in the mainstream very few people in the mainstream take this seriously how do you get your foot in the door? How do you get into an inpatient hospice, hospice facility where you can actually walk in and do Reiki on a patient or um, be their death doula and sit by them and help them with their transition? You can't unless the patient or the family seeks you out and hires you right. privately. And most people, particularly physicians, don't even know that this exists as a possibility to offer it up to people as, because I know that there are some hospice 
um, what are they called? Like hospice companies, I guess, mm-hmm. that do offer it as a service, but you if you don't know to even ask for it, you're not going to get it. Right. And not only do doctors don't know about that, most of them don't even know what hospice is. <laughs> Which is a, another part of, of this equation is, you know, um, this is another thing I say to people when I give this talk about now that we know what should we do. If you are a doctor or a nurse and you, or an educator and you have the credentials where you can be out there in the world teaching college or teaching workshops, um, try to teach doctors and nurses about death. Mm-hmm. It's desperately needed there. So I have taught classes in nursing schools, and I, I recently taught a class. They were in their fourth year, about to graduate, and I did a two-hour talk on death and dying. And they said to me, in my whole four years of nurse training, this is the first class we ever had about death. I was just shocked. Yeah, I mean, they have conferences, you know, the mortality and morbidity, or the mortality. Yeah, I think that's what it's called, mortality. I don't know what their conferences are, but um, they can but, but they don't talk about, they talk about the things they could have done differently, not how to address someone who's dying. Or to assist or support someone who's dying. So what they do learn about is how to intervene and how to fix it. And one of the nurses said to me, this is so counterintuitive to everything I know because I've been trained to go in and solve a problem and fix a patient, relieve their pain, splint the broken leg, whatever it is. And what you're saying about death and dying is that at a certain point, you don't do that. You just be with the dying and you allow them to die and you assist them. And, you know, I work in emergency rooms where we would never do that. You know, we want to stop death. So a lot of education is needed in in medical school and nursing school. So I would like mm-hmm. the people in our village to go out and, and pitch that and do that. And even in psychology, you know, in clinical psych, yeah. there was, I mean, we did an adult and aging but I don't think we've, there could have probably been an entire course just about death because death is, is so much at the core of what so many people are anxious about. And yet so many therapists aren't comfortable talking about it. And our clients are unconsciously likely sensing our discomfort with it. So they're not talking about it. So it's this layered impact of it not getting talked about. That is a really, really good point. And uh, a friend of mine, a psychologist once said, the fear of death is at yep. the root of all neurosis. Isn't, I mean, mm-hmm. it's the ego's fear of disappearing. And that's, that's with all our issues with abandonment and, you know, paranoia, whatever. It all comes down to that. And so two things that psychologists uh, don't get a lot of training in is death, as you said. I mean, you study the lifespan, right? You study mm-hmm. like Erickson's stages of cognitive development and all that. Right. But it ends at old age, which was my always my criticism of Erickson, you know, because he should have put end of life facing death the at ni- the end of the that. The ninth phase of, de- the ninth stage of development, right? Yeah, right, exactly. Um, And then the other thing they're not trained in is spirituality and spiritual care. So many people, many people facing death and illness and trauma of any kind will go to a clinical psychologist or a therapist of some kind and talk about their uh, existential 
crisis and their spiritual crisis. And that right. therapist yep. has no idea what to do and with that. I, I mean, I took a class in grad school. I remember my professor so clearly. And I remember, you know, there's certain things that just stand out. And I remember talking about spiritual emergence versus spiritual emergency. And that being like a big topic. It's actually something I have on my docket of things to talk about at some point. But really talking about how much spirituality impacts our development over the course of our lives. Yes, even if we're an atheist, it doesn't matter what your spiritual view is. Because if you don't believe in anything at all beyond the third dimension physical world, which is sort of my definition of atheism, who knows what it really means, um, you still have existential questions. Like, you know, if you don't believe in anything beyond this realm, you're still going to ask, why did I get cancer when I was 23? You're still going to search for meaning. Right. Because that's part of the yeah. nature of being human, I think. <sighs> yeah, exactly. So, we, you know, and then there's all this other stuff. I mean, we have near-death experiences. We have so much, we have far more evidence that other dimensions exist hmm. than we have that they don't exist. We have no evidence that they don't exist. Can you talk about the different cultures? Because this was really interesting. I was watching one of your talks and you really beautifully explained how these experiences differ cross-culturally because we don't all live in the same culture here. So that's probably going to look different on the other side. Well, I nobody can say what like ultimately on the other side I mean when you you're dead and you're gonna stay dead my sense is that there really are no cultural divisions at all at that level but at the level when you're just stepping into the doorway in a near-death experience and you're only a teeny little bit dead and then you come back that's where you're bringing your cultural references with you and so nobody even you know nobody knows so, uh, what it's like for someone who's been dead for 25 years. Because um, the only people who could really tell us that are mediums, but mediums, clients don't come to them asking that question. The, the clients come to the medium saying, I feel so guilty about my mother's death. You know, does she have something to say about? And they just want the messages. And very few people will pay money to a medium and say, so what really is happening in the afterlife, like way, way, way into it? We don't know. But we do know what's happening in the doorway, in the threshold, when you first walk into the foyer of the house, which is where those near-death experiences come from. We don't know what's happening way in the back bedroom of the house. So we're just in the foyer. And so with those accounts, if we look at the ones from other cultures, they're very, very different. So a Hindu stepping into that space, is not going to see Jesus. Mm. Highly unlikely. Um, a Christian is not going to, you know, be dancing with Shiva in the pantheon of, of Hindu gods and goddesses. Um, most people, well, I can't even say that. Um, there's a wonderful book by Mark Mirabello called A Traveler's Guide to the Afterlife. He spoke at our conference one year. And he talks about, for example, in in the Zulu tribe in Africa, they believe in reincarnation, but, and they believe you can come back as an animal, but only the chief can come back as a lion. Now, why do they think that? 
where do they get this idea? And, you know, my thought on that is that people have died and been resuscitated in that tribe as they have all over the world since the beginning of time. Somebody died and he came back and he said, I saw my grandmother and my ancestors and then I saw the chief and he was a lion. But everybody else was a person or an animal. So that gets folded into the mm-hmm. collective right. stories of the tribe just like we have in ours. And there hasn't been a lot of research on this. Another guy doing research on this is Gregory Shushan. He has spoken uh, at IONS meetings before. He just wrote a very detailed, very academic and very expensive book on this. (laughs) Uh, That is well worth reading, I'm sure. Um, So the idea is, and you know, even uh, when Melvin Morse was doing his research in the 70s on children, he would find that kids who were raised with religion in their near-death experiences would come back and talk Mm -hmm. about they saw Jesus. And kids who weren't would see their grandmother. Some of them saw Disney characters. Mm. And one kid that he talked about said that he flew up into the sun and the sun hugged him which is very similar to what we hear adults say that we went into the light and light right. felt like love. So it, it, the point being that whatever we have in our conscious minds, in our physical bodies, when we die and have these experiences goes with us into that experience. I imagine that after time, if we're going to stay dead, that that stuff fades away and sort of just gets filed into the Akashic record or whoever. And then you're in just pure, timeless mm-hmm. spirit space, whatever you want to call it. Um, but in the beginning, yes, the cultural references. And even people like Dr. Eben Alexander or Anita Morjani, who have ex- who were in sort of this death place for a more extended period, don't really go beyond that threshold because they come back. Is that the kind of premise? That's... Yeah, that is the premise. And so, you know, you can't ask Anita Morjani. She cannot sit there and tell people what the afterlife is like because she only went into the uh, foyer of the house. And I think, you know, the whole, and the intention, many people say that when they're there, a a spirit guide or an ancestor will say, do you want to stay or do you want to go back? And if you say, I think I'll stay, then you stay. And then you're way there in the back of the house. Or you say, I want to go back and boom, you come back. And so you only have this tiny piece of experience Mm -hmm. to relate. And, you know, I want to know what's way, 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 way back there. And I guess when people come back, even when like young children have reported memories of being there, what they report also seems to be just that doorway piece. Yeah, because they were resuscitated no, and they I mean, came young back. Kids now, who remember like who come back and remember like a past life or uh, describe oh, heaven as life. like an in between yeah. place or life between lives. Yes, yeah, that's uh, and that's um, Michael Newton's work, which is just absolutely brilliant. That's a whole other souls, thing. His, his book. Yes. And uh, at the conference this year, we have a life between life facilitator who trained with Michael Newton, who's going to be doing a presentation. So yeah, that's, that is one source where we can find that. So um, 
channelers and mystics, you know, who can really remember that stuff or travel back into the stu- into that stuff. Certainly, shamans who go out of body and visit other realms can tell us that. But even here's where it gets kind of weird. So, like in the shamanic tradition that I was taught. The afterlife is divided up into all these realms. There's three upper levels, three middle levels, and three lower levels. And there's the realm of the stone, and the realm of the plants, and the realm of the animals. And even though that whole cosmology is very beautiful, and you can do a lot of healing work with that, I don't know that that's true. You know, I mean, we just have to make some of that stuff up in order to put it into words and explain it. We're trying to conceptually understand within the limitations of our human minds. Exactly. Well said. So what do these experiences teach us about our metaphysical understanding of birth and death and what happens? Well, I think the main thing they teach us is that this dimension isn't all there is. And I think that's the most important thing that we all need to learn. And, you know, human beings have not been here for very long. We're just, you know, beginning this journey and we don't know anything. And if you look at what we know about other dimensions now, compared to what we knew, you know, in the 1600s, let's say, um, And again, it depends where you were in the 1600s. If you were in Europe, the only thing you knew about other dimensions is what the the church told you. And that's heaven and hell and purgatory. That's pretty limited. If you were in South America, where the shamans are, you would have that vision of the realms of the afterlife. Again, so culturally, cultural influence. Yeah. So what do we learn? We just learn that we don't know anything. And then what do we do with that? Like, okay, so we know that there is more... So now what? Like, how does that then inform us how we can live our lives? As many near-death experiencers have learned, once you realize that there is more and that really there is no death, that there is this consciousness that's eternal that cannot be erased, call it a soul, whatever you want to call it, that changes everything about the way you live your life. Because if the fear of death is the root of all neurosis and now you don't have a fear of death, you're going to be a lot less neurotic. You're going to live more at peace. And you're also going to grieve better when other people die. And because you know that, and you know, that they're not really gone. And so this gets into a really sticky place with grieving because um, my new book is about toxic Mm. theology and how certain religious beliefs make grief more difficult. So on the one hand, there are many Christians who believe that you should never grieve because your loved one is in heaven Mm. with God and Jesus. And so why are you crying? Mm. Why are you sad? Um, And that's a very extreme belief. Mostly you see that in cults and cultish communities. But I've talked to many people who grew up in uh, religious communities like that and they weren't allowed to cry or be sad when their mother died or their father or their dog. And it really hurt them yep, in the long run. They usually end up in my office many years later with complicated bereavement. <laughs> exactly. That's how you get complicated bereavement. So on the one hand, in that package, you know, 
that's an extreme version of it. The other more healthy version of it is, of course, you grieve because you're both human and you're both spirit. So you're going to cry and you're going to go through all the necessary experiences of grief. But some part of you is not going to be flattened totally by it if you know that consciousness continues in another form. So what you know is that the relationship hasn't ended it's just changed form, and now you have to learn how to have a different kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, the other cultures know this. You know, they, um, you've studied grief, so you know about continuing bonds, you know, which is the new, new grief theory is that we don't end the relationship, we continue it. And so some cultures will have ancestor alt- altars and ways to stay connected of course we don't have that but it's starting to change as we become well, multicultural I was in mexico over the holiday and i was talking to to one of the mexicans that we were we were with and we had a whole conversation in spanish i might say even though my spanish is pretty choppy about dia de los muertos And I was asking him what they do and what it really looks like from his perspective. And I asked him if he was afraid of dying. And he said, no. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's such a Western way of thinking. Yeah. And, and, you know, we we use the word Western versus Eastern, but it really isn't that because the, you know, Hispanic culture is Western. I mean, it's like, (laughs) you know, United States. Yeah, I know. And I always have trouble defining that, too, you know. So I just kind of say, like, you know, the American Judeo-Christian format or, or whatever. But yes, Dia de los Muertos is a perfect example of continuing bonds. And it's interesting because in that culture, they also have Catholicism, mm-hmm. where there's intense fear, fear of death. So it would be really interesting to, to explore that a little bit, like, how do you deal with your Catholic influence and your knowledge that there's something yeah. else? And if you look at the Dia de los Muertos, you know, uh, decorations, there's crosses mm-hmm. in there. So with that whole part of the world, because they were colonized by the church, has this mishmash of religion that's partly indigenous and partly Catholic, which Mm -hmm. is fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it is. And when he was telling me about it, I mean, I know I'd read about it and everything, but to hear it really directly how they go and they go to the cemetery and they bring food and they have a picnic and they have like a party at the cemetery on the grave. And I'm thinking, I mean, in the million years, I can never imagine that happening. In America. In America. Yeah, it does. You know, um, I knew a woman who brought a birthday cake to her son's grave every year at his birthday, and they had cake and had a little party around his grave. I mean, we need to do more of that. Mm -hmm. That's healthy grieving. Right, right. So can you talk quickly about, I don't know if this is quickly, but what is the difference between, or just what is an out-of-body experience? We know people who've had near-death experiences, that are they are out of their bodies, but you can have that experience and not have died. Back to the premise that we understand that this isn't the only dimension that we exist on, the best way to explain that is dreams. What's happening when we dream? We are out of our body. Something is happening. It's not just, well, it's hard to say because when you're dreaming, you are in your body, your brain is functioning. It's not like you're dead in your flatline. But all the mystics throughout history, the shamans and, um, you know, the Catholic saints even, uh, any culture that you go to, people have left their bodies. The, you know, the uh, 
the Kung Fu masters and the yogis, they do this all the time. And you can explore the other dimensions just through breathing, just through meditation. And for me, dreaming is a really big part of it because I really believe that when you dream, you're operating in another dimension that's kind of like a drawing board where you're sort of sketching out things and doing your inner work. Um, Edgar Casey used to get all his visions while he was sleeping. They called him the sleeping prophet and he was a medical intuitive and he would go to sleep and have a dream about his client and then go to the client and help them with their medical problems. So absolutely, you don't have to die to be out of your body. One of the best teachers we have around about this right now is William Bullman, um, who's uh, B-U-H-L-M-A-N, William, and he has spoken at our conference many times. He um, does workshops on this, sometimes five-day intensives at the Monroe Institute, where you can you can learn how how to do it. Mm-hmm. Learn it in shamanism too, because they call it journeying. Right, shamanic and, journeying. I've yeah. done workshops on that. It's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what world I was in, but there were lots of little animals around. So maybe the animal world. <laughs> yeah, well, it, you know, it depends which shamanic tradition that you're in. I mean, I've done work with shamans from Peru and also from Northern Europe. One uh, shaman I worked with was from like Yugoslavia or someplace. And it was very similar because there were animals. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like lying on the floor. He was doing a soul retrieval on me and I could hear animals like snuffling in my, oh my ear. Gosh. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yeah, these, ex- those experiences were, for me, it was really trippy. Yeah, it is really trippy. It's great. And so, you know, thank God for the 1960s, speaking of trippy. <laughs> Because that's how we opened the door. Right. right. And then we slammed it shut yeah, pretty damn hard. Yeah, we did. Why did we? Well, there's actually some good um, research on why it slammed shut. Yeah. You know, um, and the 70s, the 80s became this, uh, more of the 80s became this period of like wealth and uh, materialism. And we, um, and what happened was, this is really interesting. There was a period in American history that they called it the era of civic religion, where you're an American and you're also a Christian and that's all there is. And it was like that from, you know, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, that all got blown apart. Remember the Time magazine cover that said, is God dead? That was a huge thing that happened in the 60s. And so what happened when so many people were dropping out, as they called it in the 60s, and experimenting with Eastern religions and gurus and meditation and LSD and Zen and all of that, um, the religious right got really upset and felt really threatened. And so they just doubled down on their thing to try to stop this shift. And that was when you started to get all the televangelists. That's where you started to get oh, right. Jimmy Swaggart and Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and all of those guys. That just really stepped up in the 70s and and the 80s, trying to squash that down. But now it's it's over. Yeah, there's a <laughs> there's a resurgence of spirituality for sure. Yeah. I think it's kind of under the guise of wellness, mm-hmm. but it's also, you know, making its own, blazing its own trail. 
That's true. And the, uh, the, the statistics that we have now from the Pew Research Organization show that I don't know the exact number, but I'm going to say it's something like 90% of millennials do not identify with any religious mm-hmm. denomination. But does it say what percentage identify themselves as spiritual? Um, I actually have that information somewhere, and I could get that to you. It would take me a while to dig it up. But what they call it is spiritual but not religious. And right. it's even an acronym now, SBNR. <laughs> so it's become a thing, and there has been a lot of research on it. In fact, um, there's a book, something like, Inside the Minds of the Spiritual but Not Religious. I could look that up and find the name of the book. It's really wonderful. And um, somebody did that, you know, doctoral research on it or something. It has a bunch of statistics. But it's definitely happening. Yeah. If if only I would have known them what I know now. My thesis for grad school would have definitely been different than what it was. Yeah. Yeah. I was really lucky. I got to do all that stuff in school. And, you know, I got to write papers on spiritual, but not religious and toxic theology. My doctoral dissertation was called toxic theology as a contributing factor in complicated grief. Hmm. And that's like my big passion right now. And that's what my new book is, is I, because like the people who come to your office with complicated grief, they come to me too. Mm -hmm. And, And I, you know, if they have some sort of religious affiliation, it doesn't, you don't have to dig too hard to find out that that's contributing to it. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your upcoming conference. Tell us about that. I'm excited because I'm going to be there doing some live podcasting for a couple of days. So I've never done live podcasts. So it will be my first my first time. Hopefully I can figure out the electronics piece behind it. But tell us about what people can expect, what, they're, what they'll find, the types of topics that will be covered. We have people who can help you with the electronics. Um, <laughs> you. What you might have to do is get more bandwidth than you can normally get in the hotel meeting room, and you might have to pay for that. I'll let you know how that works. Okay. Um, the conference, the Afterlife Conference, is this is going to be our 10th year, which just blows my mind every time I think about it that we've actually made it for 10 years. We're going to be in the Chicago area in uh, Downers Grove at the Hilton Doubletree Suites. And um, the uh, website is afterlifeconference.com, very easy to find. And what we do with this conference, there have been other conferences focused on death, dying, mediumship, uh, out of body experiences. They've sort of come and gone. And I, what our, what makes our conference different is that I have, as I've in this last 10 years also expanded my knowledge and have been in school and got all, you know, studied religions and psychology and all this stuff. I've, the conference has followed along with me on that path. Mm -hmm. So I am not just sticking with things like near death experiences and mediums. I really want to expand. So over the last several years, we've had religious scholars, um, medical doctors, uh, shamans, of course, um, grief counselors. Uh, we just really want to open it up. So this year, for example, we have Ken Doka, who is the senior consultant to the Hospice Foundation of America. 
Hmm. a mainstream guy in a suit and everything. <laughs> and this is actually the second time he's been with us. Hmm. So he he's a perfect example of this new audience that we're trying to reach. He's always been pretty conservative. He's written a million books about death and grief, and he was never sure what he thought about near-death experience and deathbed visions. But as the last few years have gone by, and he's seen the research and experienced it more, his new book is all about that. Hmm. And he actually asked me to write the foreword for his book, which, you know, five years ago, he would have just laughed at me. Right. But, but now he's in it, which is great. So um, we have it's him. It's so we- fun to start, like, bringing that community around. I know I have some yeah. physicians who listen to the podcast and really have started to embrace kind of this the research, this way of thinking, and they're using it in their practices. So it's awesome to have this ripple effect. And that goes back to the first question of now that we know all this stuff, what do we do with it? This is what we do. And we try to reach out to the physicians and we try to. So my conference has, we have mediums. Absolutely. We've got, you know, Thomas John is here, uh, I think, for his third year with us. He does audience readings. We have and other. he's meetings. amazing. I actually took a course with him. Yeah. Because he, he I went to one of his readings and then took a continuing education course. And he's great. And the way that he, I'd taken several courses on mediumship, the way that he talked about it and explained it had like a different a different way than I was used to or that I had learned before. Yeah, he is. He's a, 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 there are no words to describe what he's like as a medium. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could give you a million examples it would take a year, but he's, he's incredible. And we're so happy to have him um, on Sunday this year. And Suzanne Northrup is with us every year. She's tremendous also. And she and Thomas and Austin Wells, another great medium. There are three favorite mediums. Um, they teach and uh, workshops and they do readings. And then we have our shamans. And uh, as I mentioned uh, before, we have uh, hospice people, somebody talking about music uh, at end of life to help guide the soul across. We've got a life between life regression person. Um, just go to afterlifeconference.com. It's just a carnival of wonderfulness, you know. And um, the point, oh, and I just now, just before we started talking, got an email from my friend, Dr. Christopher Kerr. Uh, he's going to be coming this year, and he is the medical director for Hospice of Buffalo, and he's just written a book about dreams and deathbed visions of the mm-hmm. dying. So the thing that sets our conference apart, I like to think, is that we're bringing in those mainstream people, and they're side by side with our woo-woo people. Mm-hmm. And one of the phrases I like to use describing the conference is it's a place where shamans break bread with scientists. I love that. Yeah. yeah it's a good one. So so people can go to afterlifeconference.com right. to sign up. They can, your early bird rate has since passed. But you can get a group rate, which is two or more people. So find a friend, bring a friend, come meet me. I would love to meet people, um, people who are listening. If you live in the Chicagoland area, maybe we'll we'll like grab dinner together or something afterwards. I'll bring you back to the city and show you around. (laughs) Um, Just email me if you plan on coming too. I would love to hear from you. And 
Terry, where else can people find you other than the Afterlife Conference? So um, my grief, uh, I teach grief workshops around the country, and that website is spiritualityandgrief.com. These are very beautiful, hands-on, interactive workshops. And just so happens, I'm going to be teaching it in Chicago on March, Sunday, March 15th. And the day before that, I'm speaking at the Chicago IONS group on this very topic about now that we know, what should we do? Um, if you go to my website, spiritualityandgrief.com, you'll find all my upcoming speaking engagements on the calendar there. And uh, come and see me in Chicago. And if you come, uh, I give out coupons for $50 off to the conference, so that way you can save $50. Or you can bring a friend and get the um, group rate, which saves $100 per person. And the price of the conference, it starts on Thursday night and goes to Sunday afternoon. It includes four meals, two lunches and two dinners, which most conferences don't include. So the, it's actually an amazingly low price for everything that you get. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This was this was awesome. I loved this conversation. So thank you. Oh, Amy, thank you. I'm so grateful and happy to meet you. I know. I'm excited to meet you as well. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Curious about what comes next and what it all means? You can subscribe on iTunes. Just go to podcasts and find life, death, and the space between and hit subscribe. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins. Ask me any questions you might have. Let me know what else you'd love to hear about or just share your story. I can't wait to hear from you.